0: you're going to meet resistance no matter what type of change you lead and so the question is not will you meet it, but can you keep persisting in spite of
1: it you're listening to oh shit i'm the boss now with your host jackie coke the podcast with all the tips and tools to help you succeed when all of a sudden you have the realization that you're the one in charge Hello, hello. Welcome back to Oh Shit, I'm the Boss Now. I'm your host, Jackie Koch, and today we are interviewing Alex Budak. Alex is a social entrepreneur, speaker, and writer. He is the co-founder of Start Some Good, a crowdfunding platform for social entrepreneurs, and has worked with organizations such as Ashaka and the Bridgespan Group. Budak has also served as a lecturer at UC Berkeley, teaching social entrepreneurship and global Poverty alleviation. Well, that was a. I don't know why that word was so hard to say. Um, his writing has been featured in publications such as the New York Times, The Guardian, and Stanford Social Innovation Review. Budak is a sought-after speaker on social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding, and has spoken at events such as TEDx and SoCamp. Today on the show, we dive into what it means to be a change maker, how you can, and the skills that you need, um, and the shifts you can make as a leader to help create a meaningful workplace and a great, um, and really just have a, a meaningful impact and be a change maker um, within your organization and, and within your teams. So, I'm super excited for you to hear the show. It was definitely one of my my favorite interviews so far. So, um, without further ado, let's jump in with Alex. Welcome to the show, Alex. I'm so excited that you're here. I have been looking forward to this conversation with you. Um, You know, what you teach and the work you're putting out in the world is so important because it has such a, a ripple effect um, everywhere, right? From people's personal lives, their work lives, to what they do in the world and the, what happens in our society. So, so excited to, to dive in with you. Thank you for coming to the show.
0: Oh, thank you for having me, Jackie. Thrilled to be with you.
1: So I would love to start the conversation. You know, you have a book and, um, and you really, you've coined the term change maker, right? I would love to have you start, I would love to start the conversation um, with having you describe like what or who a change maker is.
0: So I take a radically inclusive approach to my definition of a change maker, and it came from my own experience. So before joining UC Berkeley Haas, where I teach, I was a social entrepreneur. I think being a social entrepreneur is one amazing way to make change, but I also realized that it's far from the only way, and that not everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur. So Change maker is a term that I think is much more inclusive. It talks about the many ways we can all lead change. So the definition I put forward is simply someone who leads positive change from wherever they are. And so you'll see in that definition that there's no mention of roles or of titles or even scope or scale. It's a concept that I think an entry-level product manager or a small business owner has just as much claim to as a Nobel Prize winner. It's also an inclusive identity we can layer on top of our existing ones. So you can be a change maker lawyer, a change maker entrepreneur, or also a change maker parent or a change maker friend. It's a way of changing the way you see the world and your role in shaping it.
1: That's amazing. And I suppose you could be a, a change your my version of a change maker in my family life might be different than my my version of it in my career or or whatever. Does it do you find that you can well, I suppose you can pick how you're going to show up in, in, in each of those roles and either have them be the same thing or different, I would imagine.
0: For sure. Well, one of the things that's really rewarding, so of course I teach undergraduates, but I also teach graduate students and I teach executives So, everywhere from 18 years old to, let's say, 70 years old. And in teaching the concepts, most people come to me because they want to learn the concepts for their professional life, to be better managers, be better entrepreneurs. Um, but it's also really rewarding to hear how people end up applying these same concepts to their personal life. Now, I'm a parent. I've got a, a two-year-old at home. You may hear him in the background at some point during our conversation, and um, it's fun to think about how, for instance, I teach about flexibility as being a key part of being a change maker. And it takes one shape in the corporate environment, very different shape in the home environment, but both crucially important, I think, to being able to lead change and to support others to become the best that they're capable of becoming.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I read. Um... When I was preparing for the show, I read about this moment, this aha moment you had in Santa Monica when you were like, "Whoa, like this is way change maker is way different than I thought it should be." I would can you share with listeners about that moment and and how what that did for you? Because I I have a similar one I want to share as well, but I would love for them to start by hearing yours.
0: For sure. So I had the pleasure of taking a a walking meeting, coffees in hand, with. Uh, Shivani Soroya. She's the founder of a company called Tala, which is a fintech platform and does amazing work to provide banking services to the billions of people that are unbanked, especially in the global South. And so we're having a chat and just kind of talking about life and talking about leadership and talking about entrepreneurship. And as we were talking, something became clear to me, which is that she's obviously hugely successful. She's raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And We can often think that, you know, what makes someone successful are those sort of easily measurable traits. So, you know, Shivani worked on Wall Street, so she knows her finance and she's clearly a good fundraiser and she knows how to do those sort of hard skills. But as she was talking about not just her vision, but sort of the way she goes about life, the way she manages, I realized that she is, of course, all those things, but she's also more than those things. That so many things that separate her and her success are what I came to call changemaker qualities. Um, her empathy, her resilience, her curiosity. And what I found really inspiring in that moment is that you know, maybe you're not a brilliant mathematician and the finance stuff doesn't come easily to you. Or maybe you feel really overwhelmed by the idea of managing a huge team. Well, you can develop those skills, but I think I'm more interested in some of these sort of measures of heart and of hustle. It's kind of change maker qualities that I think are much more accessible to each of us. And that's really what I write about in the book and what I teach quite a bit
1: about. That's awesome. Do you want to know a funny story (laughs) about Tala? One of the startups that I used to work for, we provided like overnight cleaning and like office management support. And I, uh, I had, I, I've cleaned the Tala office in Santa Monica um, a few times, which just every, a lot of times I'll hear startups in that, in that space. I'm like, Oh, yep. I can tell you what their bathrooms look like. I had to help with that. Like it just makes me laugh.
0: Oh, that's great. Hopefully for your sake, it was in the earlier days of Tala back when there were just a few people because now they're like hundreds yes. and hundreds of people. So it was a very small,
1: out. it was, it was definitely when they were still small a hundred percent. Well, for me, I had a, I guess a, a slightly similar, maybe similar in some ways, but back in my career, when I first started out, I was working for a um, large fortune 500 company and we had to lay off a lot of people and I was in HR and it was just like, obviously had a negative impact on what I thought about that as a career and, and all of those things. And I started my first journey in entrepreneurship at that time and it was in health and wellness and I loved it. And I was doing personal development and I was like, I could see where I was having a positive impact on people's lives from a wellness and health perspective. And I moved to Los Angeles and needed to get a part-time job to make ends meet and, and start working at Lululemon and Lululemon has very much a co- deep culture of um, leadership development and weaves uh, a lot of personal development into their, their work. And it was this first time that I was, that I saw that you could make work meaningful and help people change their lives by bringing some of those personal development tools into the workplace And I was just like, wow, like this can be something that happens every day while you're working. It doesn't have to be this thing that is so separate from your day-to-day life. It really can be weaved in. And so it's a little bit maybe more of a meta moment for me, but that was a big changing moment in my life where I was like, oh, I can get back into HR and also include some of these other leadership development, personal development, things that I love to help make sure my teams are feeling supported because they're going to have to work anyways. A lot of them, a lot of them aren't going to be entrepreneurs. So how do I make their life better while they're working for me? Um, And so that's a, I think maybe a similar, but different experience that I had in, in seeing that as well.
0: Yeah, What a powerful insight. It's a great reminder that we can find that sense of purpose and meaning in surprising places. And it's kind of a corollary to the opposite of what I experienced. So if anyone looks at my bio, you see I'm very purpose-driven, mission-driven. So I really only work at companies, organizations that are are mission-driven. But I was working at a big mission-driven company and I thought it was a dream job. But what I found is that it actually wasn't. That in this case, the mission was super inspiring, but the day-to-day work no one invested in me as a person, If anything I felt beaten down each day when I left the office. And it took a couple months after I would realize, oh, you know, I'm doing important work. I'm b- working towards a mission I believe in, but I don't feel good leaving work every day. And that's where I realized that oftentimes we think that it's all about the organization that we work for or the mission of the company. But that's not enough. I think what you pointed out with Lululemon, which is maybe a company people wouldn't say is like super mission driven. Maybe it is, maybe not. But that the way they show up and support their workers, that actually gives you a sense of purpose and not enough to just rely on the, uh, the impact. You've got to treat your people well.
1: Absolutely. I've heard that a lot in my years in recruiting from people who've worked at nonprofits or um, mission driven companies unfortunately, that often can be the case. Um, I'm assuming you hear that a lot. Um, hopefully it's changing. I do think there's some, some changes going on in the nonprofit space, but I do think that can happen a ton, definitely from what I've, I've spoken with. So when you're talking to executives and, and um, you know, master's level um, students, how, what are some of the core concepts you teach them about how to implement this in their leadership style? Um, are there like any core things you suggest that they start doing or really work on or mind shift changes that you offer them um, when they think about how they can start think, looking at their life as if they are a change maker?
0: Yeah. So, you know, maybe at this point, some of your listeners are going, cool, change maker. That sounds really inspiring. Or maybe some of your listeners are going, well, that sounds really fuzzy. And you know, I, I get it, uh, I work at Berkeley, which is grounded in academia and empirical research and data. And so I actually set out to study some of this. I launched the first ever longitudinal study, looking at whether and how people can develop as change makers over time. And I went into it just with curiosity, just trying to ask and ascertain the question, like, can people develop? And the answer of course is unequivocally yes, the data are very clear there. But now we're starting to be able to break down the data and see, well, what are some of the traits the most effective change makers have in common, the things that, irrespective of roles or of sectors or experience, that makes you a really effective change maker. And we're starting to see that there's a couple of trends that are super important. So the first is one's ability to question the status quo. And this is something that is quite challenging. So behavioral economists Samuelson and Zechhauser, they've proven that the status quo bias is a very real thing. That we as humans tend to overvalue what we already have and be resistant to change. And so I think it's helpful, in the words of Haas's former dean, Rich Lyons, he says that got to think of resistance as being rational. That it's very easy as change makers, we fall in love with our idea and we go, oh, this is the perfect idea. Everyone has to like this idea. But then you meet that first person that goes, oh, I don't know about that or that doesn't resonate with me. And instead of getting frustrated and thinking, well, why doesn't this person believe in me? Instead say, no, resistance is rational. Like, it makes sense where they're coming from. The consulting firm Nobel talks about, I think, a refreshing way to reframe cynics. So anyone who's led change, you've probably come across a cynic. Someone says, nope, that'll never happen. And so their advice is to change the way we think about cynics, to say that a cynic is often just a disappointed idealist. So a cynic is someone who maybe so desperately wants to believe that change is possible, but they've been at the company for 10 years. They've seen three strategic initiatives come and go, and none of them actually led to any change. Um, And so it's important to hear them out and listen to where they're coming from, to not just discard their critique right off the bat. But if you change the way you see them and say, well, where is this critique coming from? Where is our resistance coming from? See, as rational. That can be a really helpful first step because you're going to meet resistance no matter what type of change you lead. And so the question is not, will you meet it? But can you keep persisting in spite of it? I think that's a helpful way to think about that first roadblock you're
1: uh, inevitably going to hit. I mean, I think about this, I mean, I'm in HR, right? And so I get a lot of, <laughs> a lot of my conversations around, oh, this person's always complaining or they have a bad attitude or you know, all, all of those things come up. And do you have any, did, do the studies show examples of how you've been able to like shift a cynic into a champion of something? Because I feel like it's easy when it's the same person, you're like, okay, yep, I've already done that. It's not going to work, you know? So I'm, for listeners who maybe have some people like that on the team, um, any, any hope of, of converting a cynic to a champion?
0: Yeah, there's lots lots of hope. And I can tell the story from my personal experience, but also share because this feeds really nicely into the second piece of data, which is the second thing that effective change makers do is they're able to influence without authority. So we often think that to be a leader, you've got to have the title and the power and the office. But actually, I think so much of leadership and so much of change comes down from not being able to tell someone what to do, but rather inspire them to be part of the change with you. But I think the way we often talk about and teach influence can feel really sleazy especially in business schools right so we might learn like the reciprocity effect which is like jackie i do something super nice for you and then even though you don't want to you just feel like oh i gotta do something nice for alex in exchange that's how we often think about it and so instead in the book my teaching i come up with what i call five influence superpowers these are ways of influencing sustainably and for the long term let's go through each of the five quickly Um, the first is empathy so being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I think it's crucially important. Patty Sanchez wrote an HBR finding that 50% of C-suite executives don't actually take into account how their change will be perceived by people on the front lines. It reminds us that it's not enough to just be right. You could have the right strategy, but if you don't have that buy-in because you don't understand, are people scared? Are they overwhelmed? Are they intimidated? You know, How do you reach them where they are? So I think empathy is the first of the superpowers. The second is relationships. And uh, this is one that could be helpful, perhaps, for the cynic. Um, and it's a long-term play because you can't just snap your fingers and develop a relationship. But it's investing in people as people. You know, Here I think about a friend of mine recently reached out to me and said, hey, I'm running a race to raise money for a rare disease that affected a loved one of mine. Would you support me? And in a second, I was in. But if you were to ask me why I supported my friend, you know, honestly, it wasn't because of the disease he was raising money for you an know, important cause, but maybe not in my top 20 or 30 or 40. It was because I believed in him and I wanted to support him. And so he could have asked me to support him for running a race for any one of 500 different causes. And I would have supported him because we had that relationship. The third is vision. And here I define vision as painting a picture of the future that's so compelling that people can't help but want to be part of it with you. And a crucial part, especially here with cynics, is to help the cynic connect their work, however removed from that larger mission, that larger goal. So that way, if you're trying to come to them and say, hey, here's what I need you to do to be part of this change effort, it's not just doing it in isolation, but giving that sense of purpose, showing them how this is connected to something even greater than themselves. The fourth one is passion. And now you can't fake passion. So I I think authenticity matters here. But if you're truly passionate about something, to let that out. And many change makers are, yet we feel this pressure. I think the higher you get up in an organization to sort of leave your passion at the door, to be super rational and say, like this is why we have to do it. But no, if you're really passionate about something, it's a great way to connect people to that larger mission. And then the fifth and final one is making it safe. So recognizing that not everyone has the same risk tolerance, the same comfort level with discomfort. And so are there ways that you as a change maker can make it safe for others to follow you. Here, I think about my work at UC Berkeley, which is, of course, a big bureaucracy with lots of people that want to maintain the status quo. And so what I've learned is sometimes if I'm trying to influence, I might say, hey, look, I get that this is a big risk for you. I uh, use some empathy. And I say, here's my promise to you. If you come along with me, and if it works, I promise you will get the praise. And if it doesn't work, I promise I will take the blame. That's a way to get someone who's maybe on the fence that like wants to believe, but doesn't, feel quite comfortable to say, yeah, I'll come along with you. So those are the five influence superpowers. We've got empathy, relationships, vision, passion, and safety.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I think a lot of the CEOs that I work with, they will, they, I think they're bought into this idea of safety and they think, oh, well, I told them that it was, that I wasn't going to do that. Or they think it's enough to just like say something once. Or tell them, you shouldn't be scared. Well, you know, and, and, and it, I'm often like, no, this is something you have to reinforce in different ways than just words too. Um, because they, they they're so they believe themselves and they forget that there's other things that affect somebody's feeling of safety other than just what they're hearing. You know, I don't know why I, I just that just came up. I think because it's very top of mind in a conversation with a client of mine for sure. And what I'm also hearing is, if you do come across t- people on your team who are critical or cynics, it doesn't mean that you should go out and fire them because they have a bad attitude, right? Because at some point, what I'm hearing. You're probably then going to turn over your whole team because everyone's probably going to be a little bit of a, a critic at some point. Um, so you shouldn't just chalk them up to having a bad attitude because they don't agree with something um, right away. Or even maybe over time, it might take time to prove it. Would that be a, a fair statement?
0: I think that's super important because it's easy for us as leaders, I think especially first-time leaders, when we kind of lack some of the confidence that we just want to know we're doing a great job. And that would feel really nice. But it's also crucially important I think especially for first-time leaders, but really for all of us, to be cognizant of our blind spots. Um, Andrea Espedito and Julia Bork did great work looking at what makes someone an inclusive leader. They found six traits. What I found most fascinating is that there's sort of two that work hand-in-hand. And when these two come hand-in-hand, feelings of inclusion skyrocket. So those two are humility and an awareness of our biases. Humility to say, like, look, I'm not perfect, and to model that, but also having this awareness to say, like, we all have blind spots, and when you have the humility to say "I've got blind spots, and I 'll work on it," that 's where inclusion really skyrockets and so that 's where I would say that cynics you know if there 's someone who 's continually just beating you down, maybe at some point it 's no longer the right fit, totally understandable, but often sometimes there 's some truth in there. I think about my own experience as an entrepreneur where we had built a crowdfunding site and it was for social impact. And at that point, we were going up against a couple of VC-backed giants. So Kickstarter and Indiegogo would be kind of the main competitors. And they had tech teams that were you know, in the dozens, uh, and we had a tech team that was in the twos, <laughs> and they were part-time at that. And I get these emails from users, and at first, it would amaze me, the vitriol people would have because we had a missing feature or because there was some bug. And I'd say, don't you understand? Like, Don't you understand that I'm trying to build a site with two part-time coders up against 35 coders at Kickstarter, but then I changed my perspective and saw them as disappointed idealists. And I shifted to say, actually, how amazing is this, that this random stranger using our site to donate $10 to a nonprofit is so passionate, believes so strongly in our vision that they're willing to write this impassioned six paragraph email to me about one button that they want on the site. Um, It does make it easy, but instead of just ignoring them out hand, I said, well, maybe they have something here and find ways to engage them in the change. As soon as we would maybe ship it as a beta feature and email them to, hey, will you test it out for us? Let us know what you think. And many of our cynics turned into some of our champions. doesn't always happen. But if you have that openness to say, how could I engage them in more proactive ways? You'll often find that you can unlock not just awareness of your blind spots, but also turn them into champions.
1: Totally. I mean, I'm even taking this advice to heart in that, you know, in my line of work, I I get a lot of employees who reach out Upset or complaining about something, and it's so easy for me to, I I'll be very candid with listeners. Like I get annoyed of them, and I'm like, oh, they're reaching out about this again, or don't they know where this is? Or you know, my my initial reaction is annoyance sometimes, not all the time, but there's days where I'm having a bad day, and that's my initial reaction. And I'm gonna like put this on a a little post-it note on my computer to like reframe it because I think it would well, it's just a huge, a huge nugget that I'm taking away from this. So thank you for that. Um, It might seem little, but I think it's really going to impact my day-to-day life and theirs and my clients a lot um, with that simple little reframe.
0: For sure. And I don't want to say you can't feel annoyed at first. I think that's a very normal response. And so the question isn't, do you feel it? But sort of what do you do in that moment? Do you have the self-awareness to be like, I'm annoyed here, but let me take a pause. You know, here I think of Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, one of my favorite books of all time. He says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so it's a chance for us to say, like, look, I get really annoyed by that too. But instead of just responding with annoyance, as a leader, can I sort of rise above it, take a breath, step away, and then respond in a way that's actually effective versus just sort of what our lizard brain tells us to do right away. 100%.
1: 100%. In your book, or and maybe in your, your line of work, I think oftentimes, you know, leaders will want to start to develop some of these tools and these, these strategies that you outline. Do you have, um, and maybe you provide guidance in this, but How long should it take to start testing some of these things? And like, when should you like do a touch base of like, hey, am I still doing this? Because it's like you read a book, you listen to a podcast, you're like, I'm going to do this. And then six months later, you've completely let it go because you're busy. Like, do you, what do you teach in your, in, in, in your courses and, and with your students about how to, the reality of making this change and, and implementing some of these things and how long should they stick to it? to see results, I guess, is the real question.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite books to assign in my class is called Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader by Hermione Ibarra of University College of London. And I love this book because it challenges our notion of how we develop as leaders. She says, the traditional model is you sort of sit in your room and you read a bunch of leadership books and you decide, ah, this is the kind of leader I'm going to be. I'm going to be more empathetic or I'm going to be an influential leader, whatever. And then you put it into practice. She says, no, that's actually backwards. What you've got to do is first act like a leader, then think like a leader. So have a bias towards action. Say, look, I'm going to go do do this, try this out, and get feedback. Constantly, iterative, like always be asking for feedback because you need to see what's working and what's not. You don't know until you actually put it out there. And so I like a really iterative cycle. And I think one of the most powerful things that you as a leader can model for your team is being open to feedback. We often say as leaders, yeah, you you should listen to my feedback that I give you and how open are we as leaders to the feedback that our team gives us? Amy Edmondson from Harvard, who's the leading scholar on psychological safety, talks about, as a leader, modeling failability at the top. So can you show that you have some of your own weaknesses, your own uncertainties, and can you ask for that feedback? And that's the best way to know, because ultimately you might say, oh, I'm being a super empathetic leader. But if your team doesn't think that you actually are kind of doesn't matter. It's really about how they're perceiving it. And so I think this approach towards action, a bias towards action and constant feedback and constant iteration is the best way to grow and develop as a
1: leader. Absolutely. It's the perception of of the team. Um, again, a good nugget that I'm taking back to someone I'm working with right now. Um, amazing. Well, this has been so helpful and so amazing. I, I, I want to keep div- dig digging into a lot more stuff with you, but I guess um, that might have to wait for, for, for a follow-up conversation. Tell me and tell, I guess, tell listeners, I should say, I forget we're on a podcast here, um, where, where can they learn more about you? Um, I, where can they get your book? Um, how can they start to, to get to know what you're up to and, and follow along and develop themselves?
0: Oh, thanks for that, Jackie. A few ways. So, becoming a change maker is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local bookstores, basically anywhere that you like to buy a book. You can Pick up a copy if you're inspired. Um, I love connecting with leaders and change makers on LinkedIn. So, I encourage you, any of your listeners to reach out to me there, and I'm pretty responsive, I think. Uh, and then also, if you just want to learn more about some of the work that I'm up to, you can check out my personal site, which is just alexbudak.com.
1: Amazing, amazing. Is this your first book, or have you written other books? I'm so curious.
0: Um, my, my first book and a real labor of love.
1: Oh, amazing. Congrats to you. Um, it's got to feel so, so nice to have it out in the world. Um, and maybe terrifying. I don't know. I, I think, I feel like I might want to write a book. So part of me feels like I'm terrified about it, but also, um, it's got to be so rewarding to have your work out there.
0: It's super rewarding as I'm hearing from total strangers. They're talking about how the book has influenced and touched them. And that I know that you realize like you Write a book, people will read it. I still don't, I still am still blown away that people are reading the book. And so that's really wonderful. But there is a lot of vulnerability that moment where the book goes on sale and you realize, wow, these words are now going to be read by someone I don't even know. That's a scary moment, but I found it to be a very
1: fulfilling journey. That's amazing. I know. I feel like that about this podcast. I can't believe people listen, but thanks for listening to all of you listening. Um, well, thank you so much, Alex, for your gift of time today and sharing some of this knowledge with listeners. I am so grateful um, personally to have met you. So thank you so much. And I hope that we can continue to get to know, to know one another and listeners, thanks for tuning in and make sure you go buy his book, and listen and start implementing it, please. It's going to make your life so much better at work and everywhere. So thanks for tuning in and we'll talk again soon. If you're not driving, stop and take a moment to share this episode with someone who you thought about while listening. Share it with your team to show them you're committed to their growth. Share it with a fellow business owner in your network who you know will be moved by the message. Heck, share it with your mother, your brother, your sister or your cousin. Your support in growing the show means the world to me.